In this episode, we speak with Ariel Katz, the CEO and co-founder of H1, which provides authoritative information about every healthcare provider worldwide, including academics, clinicians, and allied health professionals. Life sciences companies, hospitals, and health systems use this platform to connect with established as well as emerging healthcare providers. The company is backed by Altimeter Capital, IVP, Menlo Ventures, Goldman Sachs, and other notable investors. Prior to H1, Ariel was the CEO and co-founder of Research Connection, the first searchable online database for all of the ongoing university research initiatives and research professors across the country. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. Ariel, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to be with you. Excited for this chat. And where I thought I'd start off is comparing kind of your platform to others out there. And I know there's a distinct difference, but I'll just throw out a couple platforms and you can point out the obvious difference. In terms of healthcare provider information, there's like health grades, there's ZocDoc, but H1 is approaching this from a different angle. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Good to be here. I'm happy to be here and thanks for having me. I think the ones that we generally get compared to is like LinkedIn or Doximity. So ZocDoc and HealthGrades are for patients to go in and rate their experience with a given doctor. And that can be useful if you're trying to find a primary care physician. The ones we get compared to are more like uh, doctor networks. So like LinkedIn, Doximity, maybe ResearchGate. And then the other piece is like um, Acuvia, Viva, but it's like deep in the health world where we have healthcare professionals coming in engaging with each other, reviewing the latest medicine. And then that information is used by our enterprise clients, such as life sciences companies and insurance companies, life sciences companies, pharma, biotech, med device, then use that information about those healthcare professionals to find the right one to do research with, to run a clinical trial. An insurance company might use our information to decide which doctor to insure. It will use our information to populate its doctor information when you're trying to find a doctor in your network on an insurance website. So it's a slightly different use cases. It's all around doctor information, similar to ZocDoc and HealthGrades, but a different lens and a different piece of information, which allows us to solve different problems in the healthcare ecosystem. Got it. And it's interesting that because when I first started hearing about H1 and thinking about how it provides information on doctors, it was like, oh, this is kind of an old problem that's been touched on already, but you're approaching it obviously from the mm-hmm. pharma or B2B angle. Can you tell us about kind of that interaction. So for example, large pharma companies, like what have they been doing previously? And, and then why was that inefficient or ineffective? Great question. So the way that we think about H1, like our mental model is everything you want to know about every doctor in the world kept up to date every single day, global platform of doctors. And we want to answer two very simple questions that are not been answered yet. Which doctor should I work with? And which doctor should I go see? And so you could like your mental models for which doctor can I go see is like ZocDoc. But what if you get cancer? You're not going to go to ZocDoc. It's only for like a primary care. Like oh, I need to get a checkup. If you have like specialty, you have a heart attack, you get cancer, you need a hip replacement. ZocDoc's probably the last place you go to. You get like referred from 10 different specialists. So the problem of which doctor do I go see is actually not solved. The problem of which doctor do I work with is actually a very similar problem. So if I'm a pharma company, and I'm trying to run a clinical trial in... Um, atopic dermatitis or ulcerative colitis, pick a condition. You want to find doctors that see patients with that condition and make sure they could bring them to the clinical trial, have run successful trials in the past, know what it means to run a clinical trial and see if they're working with their competition. And that's actually really hard to do. 
Imagine trying to solve that for doctors in Australia or Mexico or Brazil, Japan, the US, Canada, the EU5, Holland. To be able to do that globally and make sure you find all the right doctors is a very difficult problem. Same thing for insurance. Insurance companies want to make money. They make money by keeping people healthy, generally. And so if they insure a bad doctor, that doctor is going to lose their money. And so they want to find a good doctor too. They want to find a doctor that sees a lot of patients, that cures those patients. The same information that you want when you go see the doctor for cancer. You want to find a good doctor that cures your cancer, that sees a lot of patients and has a lot of experience with it. So it's actually very similar information of which doctor should I work with and which doctor should I go like visit. Pharma companies before us, it was very analog. Hire a consultant, McKinsey, super smart people, but not a technology company. And so we've satisfied and built technology what used to be done manually. Got it. And the incentive on the doctors and to sign up and provide information about themselves, is that because they want to have this a bigger profile in the industry or with patients for having special expertise in a given area? Are there monetary incentives given that they're working with pharma companies? Like how does it, what's the incentive really? And how, what's the pull for all the physicians to join H1? Great question. So there's really two pulls. One is within the H1 ecosystem, we have a product called Faculty Opinions, where the top scientists and the top medical professionals in the world write about the latest medicine and science. So it's really interesting. And so other healthcare professionals come in and want to read about it. It's like me reading Rotten Tomatoes. I want to know about what the top experts think about the movies. And so it's the best analogy I could give of now you can know what the top experts think about the latest science and medicine. It's like if you're a scientist, it's actually really interesting. So that's one big value proposition. The other one is we inform them that 10 people at AstraZeneca, three people at Pfizer, 15 people at Merck, 100 patients and 100 people in South Dakota looked at your profile last week. Do you want to make sure it's up to date so that it accurately reflects what you do? They care about that because from the industry side, it's uh, research funding. So it's to get research grants, which is good. And the patient side, as you mentioned, it's top of funnel. Doctors make money when they get more patients. Right. And so it's a good top of funnel for them. Excellent. Well, you were founded in 2017, if I have that correctly, and you've been on a tear. You've raised quite a bit of capital. How has the business been growing? Can you give us, I don't know if you can talk metrics or just give us some insight into how the company has been scaling. Yeah. So we hit product market fit early and we got lucky. So within the first six months of the company starting, we had signed three of the largest top 20 pharma companies in the world, which is Number one, very rare. And number two, I credit it to luck, not as much skill. I started a company before. It takes iterations to product market fit generally. And so we, we got lucky. And that's why you see a very shortened cycle because of early product market fit. The first year we had revenue, we quadrupled our revenue and then we tripled it, then we tripled it. And now we're on pace to more than double it again. And then we're talking about in the millions. And so it's been really good. COVID was definitely tailwinds for our business in that life science companies, insurance companies, the world is becoming more digital. So we've had some rocket boosters since the change in the world, but it's been good for us so far. Fantastic. And and you've recently had a fairly sizable round, I think around a hundred million. You know, one thing, the premise of our podcast is really to, to understand better about the growth dynamics of a company inclusive of their investors. Can you tell us a little bit about the value that your investors have provided beyond simply the financial capital? Yeah. So we joined Y Combinator January of 2020, two months before the pandemic hit. It was our seed round. Then we raised our Series A in February. Very lucky with timing, a month before COVID hit. We actually signed our term sheet and then San Francisco went into shelter in place. And so it was funny time. Very lucky timing. 
we raise our seed in January, our Series A in February, and then our Series B that November. So seed A, B within about nine months. Menlo led our Series A and co-led our Series B. They've been an amazing investor. What do they help with? Number one, they put the company first. Number two is the partner there deeply understands our customers and, and was an operator for his entire career. Became an investor like three years ago. So he understands the pains of being in the trenches, helps us think about scale, puts us in touch with other portfolio companies who's two chapters ahead of us or a chapter ahead of us to give us advice. They've helped recruit basically our entire executive team on the call, interviewing everybody, interviewing final candidates, selling candidates, it's like all those different things, introducing us to customers. It's been an amazing experience. Other investors and IVP and Altimeter and Goldman, Transformation Lux, our investors range from like uh, general tech investors to more healthcare specialists. The healthcare specialists help us think through strategy. The general tech investors help us think through like company strategy. The healthcare ones help us think through like product and market strategy. We've actually gotten really lucky with our investors. And we had Novartis Pharmaceuticals also invest in our Series A, which is also a big boost. So we feel like, again, we've gotten lucky and, and made some good decisions with investors. Any kind of critical insights that have really had a profound effect on you as you were kind of going through this, this is now your second time as an entrepreneur, anything kind of like markedly different of how you think about building the company than you did previously? Every time you raise more money, your perspective changes for what success looks like. So at our series A, we raised 13 million bucks. There's a lot of money at the time. And I was like, holy crap, that's a ton of money. It was like, imagine if we could sell this business or grow it to $500 million. Wouldn't that be something? We just raised our series C, raised $100 million at a $750 million post-money valuation. Now it's like, we got to grow this business to $5 billion. And we hire executives and they're like, I came here to grow this to $50 billion. And so the bar just keeps moving. And you talk to investors and in their head, they're like, oh yeah, this could be a $20 billion business. Whereas if I just rewind the clock back two years, it would have been shouting on the rooftop success if we grew this thing to $500 million. And so just the bar keeps changing and the vision never changed, but the, the scope changes. I want like now it's like, let's help pharma companies find a doctor in Indonesia and Australia, New Zealand, everywhere around the world versus like, let's just solve it in the US. So that it just keeps multiplying. And so that, that's like a different perspective for each new round, each new investor just changes the bar and changes the perspective on the business. Maybe an obvious question, but that increase in the kind of the goal and the size, was that driven by the fact that the market was recalibrated almost every time? Like our solution could be applicable in this manner or in another kind of point of view or, or globally versus, you know, more geographically constrained, you know, like how did the size kind of change so dramatically? We say this internally here, love the problem, not the solution. So as you start talking to customers and you ask them like, hey, how do you think about which doctor to insure? How do you guide patients to pick the right doctor as an insurance company? Hey, pharma company, why do you run clinical trials globally, not just in the US? What's a bigger problem for you? So if you just start asking those questions, you'll get the answers of like 50% of clinical trials are run outside the US. A lot of them in like Russia now. Now the problem is like, how do I make sure that my clinical trials actually get done in time because there's a war in Russia and Ukraine? And so the problem keeps changing. Or with COVID, it was like, how do I make sure that I have a diverse and representative clinical trial in terms of race, age, background, ethnicity, gender, everything you can imagine. And so we just keep growing with the problem set. And we keep realizing new problems. I had no idea that in Mexico, the way you find a doctor is over WhatsApp and word of mouth. And that was really interesting. I didn't know that when we started the business. I thought it was like, you Google it, like you do in the US. There's no Googling there. And so I didn't know in Dubai, where I am right now, 
they have the most organized doctor information in the world. But I also learned there's only 70 rheumatologists in all of Dubai, but they have a shortage of doctors. So like, if you're obsessed about the problem, you keep learning and you keep expanding your reach. It's been Got a nice it. We're coming up on time, but I do like to ask a couple quick questions, if I may, just to close out the conversation. And these are more on the personal front. But what could you tell us about a leader that you think of highly, it can be in any domain of expertise, but someone you think has, you know, maybe one or more great attributes that you think of and you try to kind of emulate in some ways. Yes. I'll try and pronounce it. The Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov. He's a 14th century Jewish rabbi. And at the time, Judaism was around like learning or like study, like you learn the old scripture and the text and the Bible and all that stuff. And he said, no, let's dance our way through life. And you're here to experience it. You're not here to sit in a classroom all day. And so I love that lesson because he teaches you about like sanctify time. Like we sanctify things in life. You sanctify your Rolex watch, your Bugatti, your nice apartment. And rarely do we sanctify time and the journey. And so he teaches a lot about like, enjoy the journey. It's not about the end goal. It's not about what you get. It's about the journey itself and the time. And you sanctify the time and sanctify the experience. And it was like a big paradigm shift. And it was like, that's like a rebel thing to say. So I I try and remember that because this is a hard journey. There's some points where you're going to dance and there's some parts where you're going to cry and there's some parts where you're going to rip your hair out. But if you just like realize that the journey is the fun part, then you laugh through it and you smile through it. So that's definitely a lesson I try and bring. It's a tough job. Fantastic. And dancing, it's good. Awesome. And then last question, and I don't know if it'll relate to this, the most previous question, but is there a, a book that you've read that has had an impact on you or it could simply be a, a good book recommendation? The biggest impact, <laughs> you're going to laugh about this one too. The book that had the biggest impact on me is Robert Caro's five-part series in LBJ. I'm still waiting for the sixth. Didn't come out yet. Each book is about... 500, 1,000 pages, give or take. So I read like 4,000 pages in LBJ. And so it changed my perspective completely. To put this in perspective, he's a Democrat from Texas that passed all racial and social justice changes. Pick someone from Texas. I'm not stereotyping people from Texas, but like think about people from Texas and this person passing in the 60s, social welfare, all the various racial acts. He was just like a maverick of his time. He got crushed and he's tarnished because of what he did in Vietnam. But he changed a lot. He changed the Senate. He changed the way people thought about things. He changed the definition of a Republican and a Democrat. And um, he's famous for saying a leader is where a leader is. He was the vice president, but wherever you are, you can still be yourself and still have power. The vice president has no power. Like, that's the funny thing. They said they sit on the Senate and they could break a tiebreaker. They have no technical power. So that would give me a lot of confidence to think about like, if I trust in my abilities, a leader is where a leader is. And uh, who cares if people are older, more experienced, you could change it if you believe in yourself. And uh, the LBJ, I learned a lot of lessons from him. Awesome. Love it. Love the answers. Clearly, you're one who loves forward thinkers, ones that kind of push the boundaries, are always kind of leading into the next generation or evolution of thought. Love your answers. Thank you so much again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.